welcome home. We are still in our study of the life of Moses called Holy Moses. And if you want to go to Exodus chapter 2, we have one verse today, verse 10, that we are going to go into. Hi, Ruth. Because you don't chase people off before it starts the sermon. No, she apologized. She had to go somewhere. So, All right, verse 10 of Exodus chapter 2. Here the word of God, it says, The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, and said, Because I drew him out of the water. All right, let's pray. Lord, as always, I come before you in helplessness, and I pray that you would give me a clear mind and even an eloquent tongue. But as always, I also pray that you would reach beyond my notes and beyond my feeble abilities and bring forth things that are way beyond anything I could bring forth. That from your word, you would plant things in every heart and mind in this room, including mine, that would bear fruit even years from now, long after we've forgotten where we heard it. And I pray it in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Um, when I was in my early 20s, I worked as a night janitor in an office building in downtown Denver called Anaconda Towers. Um, Anaconda Towers was largely filled with tenants who were in the oil business. And the floor that I usually worked on was full of geologists and some lawyers, which is a strange juxtaposition, but there were the geologists and lawyers. Um, College-educated people all over the floor from what I could see when I would see them, they were all fairly well-dressed and very clean-cut. I, on the other hand, during that period of time, looked pretty much like this. That was me at the time. Now, imagine clean-cut, college-educated people working in their office floor. By the time I got there, most of them were done with work and were gone, but occasionally there'd be one here or one there that was still working late. And then they'd turn around and see this guy walking into their office to grab their trash can. Only until I grabbed their trash can, they didn't know I was there to grab their trash can. So what kept me from frightening these people was an apron. I didn't like those aprons. But all staff were required to wear what they called an apron. You think of an apron down here. It wasn't really an apron down here. It was one that went over your head and was supposed to cover your, your upper body. But... My height has always been largely above my belt. I have a long torso, and those aprons were made in Taiwan. And I am convinced that XXL in Taiwanese means way too small. It used to, I looked like I had a halter top on. That's how extra large it was. What's more, in addition to it being uncomfortable that way, I have also had a lifelong inability to do technical things like tie knots. I can tie them, they don't stay tied. They come loose. And I would have to tie these things on there, and then after a little while, the, the knot would come loose, so when I was bending over taking trash cans, this stuff would be up in my face. So I hated those aprons. The aprons were necessary to give this guy entry into a world that was not my own. These people were not from my caste, and they would not have been comfortable seeing me walk around their floor if I had not had that vehicle by which way I entered into it. They could see the apron, they could see the logo of the building, 
They knew I was official, and sometimes we even had conversations, and they discovered I wasn't quite as stupid and criminal as they expected me to be. But the apron opened the door. Now, what am I talking about? Well, I'm saying that in many ways, we as Christians are living in a world with a cast that is not our own. And to a lot of people, we can be a very threatening presence. Whether it's because in their conscience they have a fear of God that bothers them without yet bringing them to the cross, or whether just our thinking seems so foreign to them as Christians that we make them uncomfortable. Whatever the reason is, we live in a world that is not our own. But Jesus didn't leave us in this world to remove ourselves from everything, did he? One of the things they used to do in ancient times when they misunderstood the gospel is they tried to maintain purity by separating themselves entirely from the culture. In the early church, you had people that go out in the desert and dig holes and live naked in the hole to keep from being impure. <laughs> I'm not sure how that makes you impure, but they felt like because they were removed from society, they were not stained by society. Or they would live on tops of mountains. This is where the whole monastic idea came, where monks came and later pietism came, where Christians tried to remain pure before God by staying separate from everything around them. But what is our purity? The blood of Christ is our purity. I can sit in a hole all I want. I'm no more pure than I am if I'm surrounded by peers. That was a bad pun, but I threw it out there at the last moment. We are righteous only because Jesus has made us righteous. And the reason He has left us in this world is to have a witness to those who are not yet in a relationship with Christ. We have to have entryways. We have to have ways into a world that is not our own. And that's what I want to talk about today. Look at the verse again. Verse 10. The child grew. What child? Moses. And she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, meaning Jochebed, and he became her son. Not, Pharaoh's daughter is not Jochebed, but she is Jochebed. Brought it to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. Now the title of this series is Holy Moses, the Three Lives of a Mighty Prophet. What do I mean by that? Well, in the Scriptures we are told that Moses lived 120 years. We know this because Deuteronomy 34.7 says, although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his rigor abated. I'm not quite 60 and a lot of my rigor is abated. <laughs> but his rigor was not abated and he was 120. Now what's interesting is if you go through the Scriptures, you find that his, his life was separated into three parts evenly separated. For 40 years, he was a what? A prince. For 40 years, he was a what? And for 40 years, he was a what? Now, the one of those, I was just talking about this with Bill and Valerie because I hadn't really thought about it when I was preparing it. If you were going to pick one of those three by which he would be famous, which would it probably be? The prince. The prince. He, he was on the throne or close to the throne in Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world. If you think Moses is going to be famous, you think it would be during this time. Not when he was a lowly shepherd in lowly Midian. Not when he was a prophet who was out in the wilderness seemingly wandering around aimlessly for 40 years. But when he was a prince in Egypt. And yet, do you know how much Exodus talks about all the years when he was a prince in Egypt? We just read the verse this morning. 
That's it. Verse 10. The child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. Wow. I'm trying to remember, how do I know that it was 40 years that he was a prince? Because Acts 7.23 says, but when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And that's where you get to the story where he ends up killing an Egyptian. So he was a prince for 40 years, and all we know about it in the Old Testament pretty much is Exodus 2.10. And in the New Testament, we get a couple of verses from Stephen when he was preaching by the power of the Spirit, and he said this of Moses. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God. And he was nurtured three months in his father's home, and after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses, this is the verse, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. That's all we know about his first 40 years. But notice what he was educated in. The ways of what? Now, I'm going to make the case later on, because there's plenty of evidence of it, that Moses did not become aware of his Jewish ancestry later in life. Moses did not come to know his family later in life, for Aaron is going to come to him while he's in Midian, and he already knows Aaron. Chances are he knew these people throughout his life, knew his Jewishness throughout his life, so there was for him certainly a contrast between what the Jews believed and what the Egyptians believed. And what did the Egyptians believe? Was it consistent with the God of Israel? I went to a, a, a... Was that you and I that went to a museum on Egypt in Seattle? Or did I do that before we were married? They had this... I was visiting my brother in Seattle and they took us to this museum where they were doing a series of things from Egypt that they brought. Uh, and the one thing that I noticed, I was a new believer then, was that everything in Egyptian philosophy, everything in their religion had to do with death. I have never, never read about a culture more absolutely obsessed with death. What are those? And what were pyramids used for? Tombs. That's fitting because that's how fascinated they were with death. What are those? Mummies. Mummies are death. Everything in Egyptian culture was death. Spiritually, it was death. It was polytheistic. They believed in many gods. They believed in just about everything that the God of Israel does not teach. So for Moses to be educated in all the ways of Israel, all the ways of Egypt, was for him to be educated in ways that were directly contrary to his Israeli brethren. The Hebrews didn't believe what he was being taught. And I don't know how close he was to knowing the Lord, but I do believe, as I will make the case later, he knew about the God of Israel. And there must have been a serious contrast going on when he was learning one thing from the Egyptians and perhaps another from his family. You ever been there? You ever been in two worlds at once? If you're a Christian living today, you ought to be in two worlds at once. You should definitely be favoring one, but you're well aware of the other, are you not? Would God do that? Would God take one of His people destined for great things, destined for glorious things, and teach Him the way of the pagans? Sure. He did it for others. He did it for Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 1. 
get there before me, you win a prize. I'm already there. So I win a prize. I get to read it. I will just give you the context. Um, Babylon conquers the southern kingdom, and they take the Jewish people in Jerusalem, and they take them into captivity in Babylon. Babylon was essentially centered in what is today Iraq. So they were headed kind of to the east and to the north, and they were taken out of the land of Israel, not to return really until the days of the Persians, which was the next empire to come along. But while they took captives, some of them were treated differently. Go to verse 3. Then the king, the king of Babylon, ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach the literature and language, be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans, meaning the Babylonians. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now this was among them, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were educated in the ways of the who? The Chaldeans, or known as the Babylonians. Was that consistent with the ways of God? None of it was good. You, you just read about Nebuchadnezzar. He could give lip service to God, and in the next moment he was acting like a Chaldean. But they learned it. And when they learned it, they gained an avenue to witness to people who might never have heard them without that apron on. Do you hear what I'm saying? How about Paul? Was Paul educated in the ways of the pagans? He was a Jewish man, but he was, he was a citizen of what? Citizen of Rome. He was educated by Gamaliel, a famous rabbi who's even mentioned in secular history. But the Scriptures tell us, by his own words, that he was also educated in the ways of the Romans and the Greeks. Go to Acts chapter 17. Book of Acts... Chapter 17, Paul is traveling through what is Macedonia and Greece, was then and is still Greece today, and he has come to Athens. And as he's walked through the streets in Athens, he's watching all these idols in the street, and it grieves his heart. And he prays, and God puts him in a position to witness to a bunch of leaders in Athens at the Areopagus, which was a place where they all met together and heard, in fact, 21, verse 21, it says, are you there, 1721? Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. If you read about Athens, that's exactly what they did. They sat around and discussed things all the time. And this was a perfect avenue for Paul. Verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, which is a place where they talked about these things, and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Now, I want you to see that right away he's bridging a gap between them. What most of us as Christians would be tempted to say is, I see that you are pagans who worship idols. How close are you going to get to your audience by saying that? Would it be true? Is it the way to start? 
No, instead he says, I see you are very religious in many respects. Is that a lie? No. And it's an avenue by which he reaches them telling the truth. Verse 23, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. I've talked about that verse before. It's fascinating in many ways. But here it's also a bridge. He's telling them that you Greeks and we Jews are of the same race. We are same people with the same God. This is new to them because this is not how they're taught by the other Jews and it is certainly not how they are taught in Greek philosophy. They viewed themselves as better than everybody just as the Jews viewed themselves as better than everybody. Paul is telling them right here, we have a connection. We are the same. Verse 27, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him though He's not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are His children. Did you notice that? Some of your own poets? Did He say some of the prophets? Some of the poets. Whose poets? He's quoting someone, I think it's called Epimenides, who was a a Cretan poet. How did he know how to quote a poet from the Greeks? Education. He'd read the poets of the Greeks. What was a godly man doing reading the pagan literature? Building bridges. You think God had something to do with the way Paul was born? A Roman citizen in Tarsus, which is not in Israel, but raised as a Jew? You've got a man in two worlds. He's raised with the Old Testament Scriptures. He is a descendant of Abraham, but he's raised among the Greco-Romans and he knows that culture as well. And when God sends him out, he sends him to witness to those very pagans because he has a bridge open to them. He has the apron on. He can walk in among them and speak in ways that they understand because God has established in him a connection between him and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. When I was, uh, before I was a believer, I played guitar a lot, and I had the delusion I was going to be a rock and roll star. You can see how well that worked out for me. Um, well, you didn't laugh at that. Maybe I should try it again. Um, but I was into blues. And if you've ever listened to blues, I still like the style of blues. I like uh, jazz and ragtime and, and things like that. But if you listen to most of the lyrics, it's kind of like with country. It's not edifying. It's usually deathly. It's usually about adultery and murder and theft and suicide. Uh, it's, it's real happy stuff. That's why it's called the blues. And when I, uh, when I became a believer, I was convicted about a lot of things. And I stopped playing the guitar. First couple of years I was a believer, I didn't even play. And I was on the verge of giving my guitar away. And when I moved into that ministry in Denver, I still had it with me because I just couldn't bear to give it away. You know, I... I I felt like my conscience, and I think it was more me than the Spirit was telling me to give it away. But my heart wouldn't give it up. 
Well, one night, the worship group didn't come that usually came. In fact, they never came again. And that somebody said, don't you have a guitar in your room? Hold on there. I went and got the guitar. I was strumming on it, thinking, what am I going to do? And there was a guy named Bruce Carter, a friend of Katie and I, who had once been in a soul group. He'd been on soul train in the 70s. Now, he told me that, but I never believed him. But I started strumming on the guitar, and he started singing. Man, was it good. And it was bluesy. And yet he was singing praises to the Lord. And before we ever even got out there, people were turning around and listening. Later on, when I started deciding maybe I didn't have to give up the guitar, I witnessed to a guy on the street named Ray Tierney, who was, both of these men were in our wedding. They were groomsmen of mine. Ray Tierney was, a, was an alcoholic on the streets, had this long white mane of hair, this little tiny like Egyptian beard. That's, that's the only place it grew on his face. He was half Irish and half Italian. So you can imagine what kind of personality he had. He was all over the place. And when you tried to witness to him in normal ways, get away from me. But one day, he was sitting on the sidewalk. Somebody handed me a guitar, and I sat down and started strumming blues. And suddenly, he was fascinated. And I started, he started wanting to sing little bits. He didn't sing that well, but he still liked to sing. He started singing little bits of songs from the 70s, bluesy songs from the 70s. And I started doing it too, but I was changing the lyrics, as I'm apt to do, to a gospel lyric. And that's how I first witnessed to him. He eventually came to know the Lord. He was a groomsman in our wedding. He's now dead. He, was, he had a belly out here, and it wasn't fat. It was his liver, because he'd already damaged it before he ever came to faith. And he started going back a little bit. And I think God said, you're coming home. But he got saved. And I am blessed to have been one of the witnesses that took him there. And I did it by going back to that worldly thing that had once been unclean. And God has since made it clean. Our knowledge of the world is not against us. It can be used in our witness to those around us. John 17, verses 15 through 18. You've heard that saying, be in the world and not of it. That's not a direct quote from Scripture. It's based on this. John 17, 15, and 18. You should read John 17. We always call um, the, the Sermon on the Mount, we'll say it's the Lord's Prayer. That's the Lord's advice on how we should pray. This is the Lord's Prayer, or part of it. John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. He says, I do not ask you, he's speaking to the Father, to take them, in other words, his children, out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Jesus is called the Son of Man, but he's also called the Son of because he is both. All at once. He's the bridge between heaven and earth. By being the Son of God, he is divine, he is deity, he is God forever and ever. Amen? But by being the Son of Man, he's also a human being. Born into this world to live as a human being. To sweat. Yes, he sweat. It doesn't say it in Scripture, but certainly he did. To live as a human being, eating and sleeping and getting tired and going through all the things that human beings do, yet without sin. Talk about somebody who knew both worlds. He knew every heart that he spoke to. When the Pharisees condemned him in their hearts, he heard all of it. He didn't have to learn this stuff. He knew this stuff. He knew the world. He knew heaven. He came into the world as someone in the world 
and brought God's glory with him to people who would not have found it in any other way. Hallelujah. We would never have made our way to God. Go to Matthew chapter 9. The problem with pietism is, is people try to separate themselves from sin. <laughs> and we're full of sin outside of Jesus. Jesus didn't separate himself from sinners, did he? I know you know this story. If you were in my Sunday school class this morning, we went through this passage. And I know I've went through it many times. It's one of those passages I go through in my sermons frequently because it illustrates the difference between religion and the gospel. Verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. Some of your translations will say Levi. It's the same guy. Sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Were the tax collectors good people? Not generally. No, in fact, they would have been counted as collaborators today. They were Jews who took taxes from their fellow Jews for the sake of the Romans, the hated Romans. What's more, the Romans told them, take so much every year from your people, and whatever you get off the top of that is all yours. You do that with any sinful human being, and you're asking them to gouge people. And that's what most of them did. So when Jesus came to this guy in a tax collector's booth, he wasn't coming to somebody who was pious. He was coming to somebody who had been breaking bad for a good long time. Verse, verse 10. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. If you're a sinner who's hated by everybody around you, what kind of friends do you have? You what? You, a lot of people just like you. Jen, when you're living in Tent City, where do most of your friends live? In Tent City. So if you invite somebody over, you're probably, in, you're not, but you would have probably been inviting them to, to Tent City. This is true with Matthew. He's got friends who are tax gatherers and sinners because nobody else is going to hang out with him. So he invites Jesus over to his house and guess who Jesus is going to be hanging out with? Tax collectors and sinners like he's doing in this church very this very day. Amen. Thank you. Verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? I'm not sure they said it quite like that, but I always want to say it that way. 12. But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. In other words, I want you to be loving, not religious. That's what that means in essence. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Michelle read her versions, and, and essentially it said, if I'm correct, I did not call, come to call those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners. And that's exactly what he's saying. But how did he reach them? by being amongst them and understanding them. Jesus told us, He said to them, go into the world and preach the gospel to what? Is all creation righteous? <laughs> no. How do we reach them? By finding common ground. Right? And sometimes that's going to take us into uncomfortable situations, is it not? It's been 10 years since I went to Cambodia. I can't believe it, but it's true. And when I got there, I was seen as a dignitary. You know why? Because I'm fat. See, in Cambodian culture, if a man is fat, he is viewed as successful. 
And the bigger and fatter he is, the more successful he is assumed to be. They saw me, assumed I was the President of the United States. <laughs> and they invited me to a funeral. Because it was an honor to be invited to a funeral. Well, what kind of funeral was it? Was it a Christian funeral? It was a Buddhist funeral. Now, my pietist side thought, well, I can't take part in that. But fortunately, I also had Jeff and Heather with me, and they said, you cannot turn down this honor. We're going, and you should go. And I realized it was true. Now, I got nothing edifying about that funeral. The theology that was translated to me broke my heart. They believed that the man they were, they, they were mourning was being carried into a heavenly place by their chance. They were carrying him up by doing this. And I'm not speaking true Sanskrit or whatever it was that was supposed to be there. And they went on like that. I could, it was like watching. If you ever been in a room full of strobe lights, what it, it starts to get to your mind. That's exactly what that was like. After a little while, it was just one big. I hated it. I wanted, I wanted to stand up and say, shut up! But I knew I couldn't do that. I've been told, keep your feet on the floor because you're insulted if you show them your feet. Sit quietly and just sit through it and honor them. And by saying nothing, I honored them. I didn't take part in the Buddhist funeral, but I honored the people who were at the Buddhist funeral by being present and honoring their request that I be present. Is that a bad thing? It was a good thing. Now, here's the thing. I can hear Christians saying, but doesn't it grieve you to be around sin? <laughs> it grieves me to be around my own sin. <laughs> That's the difference. Um, the scriptures do tell us not to love the world, right? First John says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now he's talking to people who are saved despite their sin. He's not talking to God. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of light is not from the Father, but is from the world. But here's the thing. John also wrote this from Jesus. The world is passing... Oh, where am I? Oh, the world... This is still from John. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Here's what John also wrote, quoting Jesus. For God so loved the what? We know this one. Pretend there's a field goal being kicked. John 3.16. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. What did Jesus do? He came into the world. God in the flesh. Was sin a bother to Him? Yes. He must have been grieved every moment to be around the sin that He was around, more so than we because He's the only man who ever lived who was literally completely righteous. As we are not. But he understood. And he came into this world and reached people where they were at. Because he loved us. Even though it must have grieved him. Not only to be among sin, but to ultimately be slandered with sin. And to take the sins of the world upon his shoulders. He came and stayed because he loved us. And in that I will finish with a story. Have this, oh, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, He didn't hold on to His glory. He came into this world, He was still God, but you wouldn't have known it to look at Him. 
verses, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, that's me when I was probably about 10 or 11 years old. Maddie's not here, so I will say that some people look at that and think they see Maddie. If she were here, she'd cringe if I said that. That's me. I don't know that you can see it, but I have a bunch of cats in my arm. Um, we had a number of cats in our house. My mother, after my dad left, started collecting cats. Not, not so much by plan, but once people knew she was compassionate, couldn't turn a cat away, we became like a monastery. You know how they would set babies in and turn, people would come and put cats between our screen door and our door in the middle of the night, and we'd open it up and we had a new cat. At one point or another, we had as many as 23 cats in our house. Now, if I remember correctly, we had some that were indoor cats and some that were outdoor cats. The cats I was holding were indoor cats that had gotten out and I was capturing them. And if I also remember right, right after that photo was snapped, two of them got away from me and scratched me. I had my shirt open and everything. The scratches have since healed, but I remember that. Now, here's the thing that I'm talking about. The house we lived in smelled bad. I don't care how much you keep up. you got 23 cats. If you've got one or two cats, sometimes, right? 23 cats, there's no way you keep up with it. It's too much to keep up with. It smells like a cat box all the time in every single room. What's more, probably about a year after this, we lost all our electricity. So it was a dark house with 23 cats in it. It was dark and it stunk. But you know what's strange is when you're in that all the time, you don't smell it anymore, and your eyes get used to the darkness. However, I was a kid, and I went to school. And I would go out into a light world, into a school that smelled more like Lysol than, than cats. And when I came home in the evening, guess what? That door would open, I'd see the darkness, and the smell would almost overwhelm me. But I always went in. Why? What? It was my home. I was At that moment, I didn't feel used to it. It was my home. There were people in there I loved, and I was going to be with them. That's my analogy. There were people I loved in there. And I, I mean, you can hear about my childhood and think I had an unhappy childhood. Actually, I had a happy child. My adulthood hasn't always been good. My childhood was happy because my family and I loved each other. My mother, we three siblings, four siblings, my three siblings, we fought like siblings do, but we loved each other. We loved those cats, too. They were like family, you know. So I had, I had a happy childhood, but it was a stinky, dark childhood. And only the love of that family caused me to go in and come back out. So here's, here's the long and the short of it. God leaves us in the world of darkness and stench and even allows us to learn the ways of darkness and stench. Not to live in them, but in order to have a bridge to the people who are still in that darkness and stench. Jesus loved them and came into, came into the world to save them by bridging that gap. He sent Paul to do the same thing, setting him up as both Greco-Roman and Jewish. He sent Daniel into Babylon, allowed him to learn the ways of Babylon so that he could be a witness to the Babylonians and later to the Persians. He sent Moses into Egypt and made him a prince in Egypt, and got him educated in all the ways of Egypt, none of which were the heart of God, but through that, Moses would have an influence that nobody else in the world could possibly have. We are in the same position in this world. 
as believers in Jesus Christ, we're living in a world that is not the world we will spend eternity in. The reason we are here is because there are many still who do not know Jesus. They won't know Him by our pointing our fingers at Him. They won't know Him by our slamming Bibles into their heads. They will know Him by our finding common ground with them and treating them with respect and love while glorifying God with our lives. Let us be about the Father's business and do as Moses did. Let's pray. Lord, I just praise you for being the gospel, the creator of the gospel and the living of the gospel itself. I praise you that you came into a world of darkness to save sinners like me. As we were talking about this morning in Sunday school, Lord, we as Christians need to remember that we are beggars telling other beggars where we have found bread. We praise you, Lord, that you are that bread. Find us online at newlifechurch.today.